Hi, I'm Michael Morris. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the Christian Fundamentals Discipleship course. Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every day. The Bible is brimming with life-giving truths and rich promises from God. It tells us what He is like and sheds light on His plans and purposes for our lives. The better we understand, embrace and apply these truths, the richer our personal relationship with Him will be. Good to have you all here. Thank you for coming. I trust we're going to be blessed again tonight. Some interesting, interesting stuff. In fact, tonight we're going to cover one of the most life-transforming realities in Christendom. Righteousness. And we've got, there's so much to say on it. Having tried to condense it into one lesson, it's very difficult. Um, and even in preparing again to present it, I realized just how much stuff isn't in the actual lesson because there's just so much to say about it. So we're going to do that tonight, but before we do that, let's pray. Our Father God, we want to thank you that tonight we can come and be here like together like this. We want to thank you, Jesus, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, and for your abiding presence. We want to thank you, Jesus, for your love that you pour out on us every single day, that you may come alive in our hearts, Lord God, that we can minister it not only back to you in worship, but also share it with those around us. And Father, we're just so glad to be your people tonight. We're glad that we can be your disciples. And Lord, as you continue to mold us and make us and shape us into who it is that you want us to be, Father God, we pray for your grace. We pray for revelation knowledge to flow. Lord, I pray that even tonight, revelation will drop into hearts that of what it means to be righteous, of the fullness and the completeness of the work of your cross, Jesus. And I pray that even tonight, the power of your word, Lord God, would transform perspectives in this house and in this place, that we would enter into a greater dimension of intimacy and of joy in being your sons and daughters. So I commit this to you. I commit the word to you, Father God, and I pray your blessing over it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, folks. Yes, Spirit. Speak, Lord. All right, so let's just do a little bit of a recap quickly. We've, we've, got, we've done a couple of modules already. We've gone through what it means to be a disciple. Who can summarize that for me? Not you. It means to follow. A disciple is one who follows another, who submits himself to his ways. And what it means to be a a follower of Jesus means to forsake all others, to live not for oneself or according to what I think is right or what is fair, but to live for Jesus and enjoy him. And and then that brings us on to lesson number two where we looked at worship. What is worship? The reason for our existence. Good. And what does that mean? How does that work itself out? (laughs) so when I discover who God is and who God has created me to be and I begin to live out of the fullness of that everything that I do becomes an act of worship worship is something it's a heart's response or an attitude toward God that I express back to him and I express to the world around me it's the fruit or the evidence of true discipleship of the lordship of Jesus 
that He's come into my heart, that He reigns, that He rules. It's a thankful expression. Tonight, we're going to look at righteousness and what that means. And before we jump into the notes, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to start you off with a test. Yes, that's right. Literally, a test. It's called the righteousness assessment. Now, I don't know if any of you might have done this before. If you have, keep it to yourself. Keep the answers to yourself. I will not be marking this test. So you are going to put your own name onto that. And this is purely for you to, to realize... Don't cheat. To realize some things. That don't copy off anybody else. You can't steal anybody else's righteousness. I mean, if you have to cheat on this test, you know we've got a problem. So I want you to do this little test. I'm going to give you five minutes to do it. Don't share your answers with anybody. And then we're going to all mark it together and see how we fare in this test. That, you see, it's your fault. You wouldn't sit closer. So, so what we're going to do is this will help us see how much we need this teaching tonight. So your time starts now. When your wife starts adding sins to your list, then you know. <laughs> you forgot that. You forgot that. All right. Shall we go through this and give out the answers? All right. True or false questions. Number one, a good description of a Christian is a sinner saved by grace. Who said true? Who said false? How many trues? Okay. False. All right. The answer is false. False. That's right, Uncle Nick. You see, the day you got saved, you're no longer a sinner. You were a sinner. Yes, you have been saved by grace, but you are now not a sinner anymore. All right. Can you, so, question number two, you can sin and not know it. True or false? True? Anybody say true? True. I want to know who said true. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course, of course the answer is false. If you sin, your conscience will tell you you sin. That's right. Now, you can do things in ignorance, but then when you come to Revelation, you will know. I think we live with something called a sin consciousness where we're so conscious of always being sinful that we think that everything we do is wrong. All right. Is it normal for a Christian to sin? It is normal for a Christian to sin every day. False. False. It is not normal for a Christian to sin every day. And we're going to get into why and how can that possibly be because I feel like I sin every day. I feel like I do things that God is not pleased with every day. Could that be because I reason from a point of God is not pleased with me and somehow I have to do something to please Him today? It could be. Let's carry on. A bad thought is a sin. True or false? False. false. Anybody said true? You said true. A bad thought, if a bad thought were a sin, then Jesus would have sinned when Satan tempted him with the thought of eating the loaves, eating, turning the stones into loaves and eating them. A bad thought in itself is not a sin. You can't control every thought that comes into your head. 
but you can decide what you're going to do with it. A thought lingered on can lead to sin. So there was a preacher one day who was teaching a group of, a, a group of young adults, and he said to them, young men, if you look at a lady once, that's not a sin. But if you look at her again and again, then it's becoming a sin. So one of the young guys says, that's why I, when I look at a lady the first time, I look good and proper. <laughs> I look long, because that first one's all I get. <laughs> okay, so a bad thought is not necessarily a sin. When you recognize it, you see, that, that, that's the gift of discernment. You can discern when something is good or bad, and that discernment is a great gift. All right. It is easier for a Christian to sin than to do the right thing. False. False. You see, we have the life of Jesus in us that, that it's, it's not easy. There's something that restricts us now from wanting to sin. The closer we get to Jesus, the less we will be tempted. True. No, it's not. It's false. <laughs> You'll be tempted perhaps in different ways, but Jesus doesn't tempt you, does he? Jesus doesn't tempt us. Who, who's the tempter? Satan, that's right. And he wants us to slip up. Now, the, I, the, the closer I get to Jesus, the more quickly I will recognize temptation. But you'll also find the temptations change as you grow. What tempted you how many years ago, hopefully, is not the same thing that still trips you up. I mean, we all have blind spots. We all have areas in our lives where we are prone to weakness by the way we think, by our upbringing, by, by various things. But the closer we get to Christ doesn't mean the less we'll be tempted. It means the stronger we are become to resist the temptation. Number seven. Hmm? Yeah, the enemy will push you more the closer you are to Christ. He'll resist you more. We get closer to Christ through acts of righteousness. True or false? Anybody say True. Now, no one's going to confess true at all. Any... <laughs> okay, did anybody say false? You're right. <laughs> hey, the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are God's and he is yours. You couldn't get any closer. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you could do to make God love you less. Think about that. Just think about that because it goes completely against our, our way of reasoning and the way we live everyday life. We think of doing good and we'll get good. and There's nothing you can do that makes Jesus love you more. There's nothing you can do that makes Jesus love you less. And your state does not change every time you slip up. Oh, now I'm righteous, now I'm unrighteous. Now I'm righteous, now I'm unrighteous. Sure, I'm not saying we can't still sin. The Bible says, 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins to, you know, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when we begin to understand what righteousness is, we will think very differently about that. Sainthood is attained by only a few Christians? False. Every believer is a saint. We're called the saints. And number nine, to be tempted is a sign of sin sinfulness. False. Did anybody get them all right? Now, did anybody who hasn't been through Bible school get them all right? 
I must give credit where credit is due. When we did the righteousness module in HFBI, it was one of the things that I got so much out of my four years of Heritage of Faith Bible Institute, but that module was the most life-transforming module for me. And I want to share a little bit of testimony, but let's first finish here. How many sins have you committed today? Now, I'm not going to ask you. Okay, do we have a winner? I have four here. Do I have seven? Do I have seven? Anybody got... What? (laughs) I don't know. How many... But you see, now, here's here's a very interesting thing. We ask that question. How many sins have you committed that day? And in our minds, we have a pretty clear idea of what a sin would look like, okay? Then the next question says, how many acts of righteousness have you done today? And immediately we're stumped. Because I don't quite know what an act of righteousness is. What does that look like? Now, if I go back to last week's lesson about worship, where our lives become a natural expression of that which is happening within us, if our heart is in fellowship and communion with God and we're living out of the fullness of that, everything we do is an act of righteousness. Remember last week, the closing scripture? Whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, do it all to the glory of God. Acts of righteousness. It's an overflow of who you are. On a scale of 1 to 100, how righteous would you say Jesus is? Anybody get that one wrong? Because then we're going to have to, just, I'm going to have to talk to you afterwards. Okay. No one got that one wrong. Jesus, 100% righteous. On a scale of 1 to 100, how righteous are you? 100. Now it's changed because of... Yes, now that you understand the first little bit. Okay. You are as righteous as Jesus is. Let that sink in. As he is, so are we in this world. Stop preaching my sermon for me, otherwise you can come do it. (laughs) No, that wasn't an invitation. You are no more or less righteous than Jesus. Isn't that incredible? So when God looks at you, what does he see? We normally say Jesus, but it's not entirely true. <laughs> because he sees me. He sees me. He sees me for who I am. With all my sin washed and wiped away. I love scriptures where God talks to the prophet Isaiah and he says, Come, let's reason together. In other words, let's have a conversation where there's reason. There's not just emotions, there's not just feeling. Let's have a logical conversation. Let's reason together. And though your sins are like scarlet, I will wash you white as snow. And I will give you a reasonable explanation. I will cleanse you of all your sin. We see the vision that he had last week. We spoke about that, right? About how he said, I am convicted. I am a man of unclean lips, and I, am, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm so aware of how far short I fall from your glory. And then angel comes, and he touches him with a coal, and he says, your lips are now cleansed. That which once separated you with, you were so conscious of, has been wiped away. In the Garden of Eden, we see Adam and Eve, the first thing that they did after they'd eaten the fruit, their eyes were opened, the Bible says, and they could perceive good from evil. And for the first time ever, shame entered the world. Creation, which was created or made In the image of God, this man and this woman felt shame. Can you imagine life without shame? 
Some of us, that's, that's kind of, you know, that's, that, that's family. That's what life is like. I watched uh, a little thing a little while ago by a guy called Jay John. He does these short stories. He's a preacher. He's a British, he's, he's a Cypriot. He lives in Britain. And he's a preacher. He's an evangelist. But he tells beautiful little stories and anecdotes. And he was, one thing he said one day was that, um, you know, he, I'm Greek. And he says, my friends watch my big fat Greek wedding and they come and ask me, is it really that bad? And I say, no, 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 it's much worse. He says, in fact, my mother is a travel agent for guilt trips. That's kind of the culture of how things work. And we're driven by guilt, we're moved by guilt. And Adam and Eve were moved by guilt, but were they moved towards God or from God, away from God? They were moved away from God. They tried to hide from Him, right? Because they felt guilt, they felt shame, and the weight of sinfulness separated them from God. And it's true, sin can have no, cannot exist in the presence of God. It leads to death every time. And then we also have the scripture where God says, uh, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Your transgressions, I remember them no more. Every sin that you have ever committed, every one that you listed on your sheet that you thought of that you've done today, And everyone that you will do in the future is all wrapped up in God's divine forgetfulness, where he chooses not to remember it anymore. What does that mean? I realize I'm having a bit of a preach before I even get into the notes, but this is good stuff to understand. What it means is that every sin in my life was nailed to the cross with Jesus 2,000 years ago and has been paid for in full. In other words, it's done, it's in the past, it no longer exists. When you live your life having your sin dominate your thoughts, it's like that which is gone still has control of you today and determines how you live your walk out with Jesus. So the whole reason that my life was so shifted by this module is because for years I had lived a double life as a Christian. I had my church life and I had my social life. When I came into latter part of high school, last couple of years of high school, I went on a tour and I found a new group of friends amongst whom I was popular. I was the life of the party all of a sudden. Before that, I was the nerd. I was the guy who laughed at his own jokes and laughed funny at his own jokes. And I got into a new setting where suddenly I felt accepted and I felt like I was somebody. And it led to a complete double life, my little church life and this life. Pastor Andreas is instrumental in taking my ear and sorting me out and teaching me what it means to to live for Jesus 24-7. But this module, or this revelation of righteousness, that God loved me when I was good and that he loved me when I was bad, changed who I was. It enabled me to come out of that double life syndrome, to deal with all my rejection and insecurity issues, and come to a place of being content and happy and stable and settled in the love of God. If I said Matthew 6, to you, you're all very familiar with that portion of Scripture. It comes, it says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So Jesus tells us that we are to seek after His kingdom. In other words, the full expression of His, vict- of his victory in Christ in our lives and his righteousness. There's something we are to pursue and go after. And that's what we're going to be talking about 
tonight. So let's look at the purpose of this lesson. The purpose of this lesson, how's it? Is to gain a fundamental understanding of what true righteousness is and how it affects the life and attitude of the believer. Armed with this revelation, we are able to live lives that are empowered through an attitude of righteous consciousness, not righteous conciseness. Please forgive the spelling mistake as opposed to living from a debilitating and faith-crippling state of sin consciousness. Why do I say it's faith-crippling and debilitating? Here's why. When you are conscious of your sin, you are conscious of how unworthy you are. That's what caused Adam and Eve to pull away. That's what caused them to cover themselves. An understanding of righteousness brings us into a place where, despite what we've done, simply because of Jesus... We understand that we are now deserving of God's love and His promises and His blessings. You see, folks, all of God's blessings and promises belong to the righteous. If you read Scripture, all of God's blessings, all of His promises are for the righteous. God has nothing for the unrighteous, for the wicked, for the unbeliever. Why is it so many struggle to appropriate God's goodness, His benevolence, His blessings in their everyday lives? because they do not see themselves as worthy or deserving thereof. Let's all be honest, folks. We all know that in our flesh we're not worthy or deserving thereof. So none of what I say tonight is a boasting in how good I have become or God has made you to become. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got nothing to do with how good you are or how bad you are. If it was ever to do about that, none of us could achieve it. None of us could get there. There'd be some kind of standard that we had to meet. You cannot earn righteousness through keeping any law. What does that mean? You cannot make yourself righteous. You cannot do enough for you to be called righteous. And you cannot abstain from enough to be called righteous. That is religion. That is life under the law. And yet, as New Covenant believers, that is still so much of how we think. Isn't it? Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags to God. In other words, the very best that I have to bring, my best intention, my best behavior, my best offerings, compared to him, it's filthy rags. Horrible, ugly things that nobody really wants. So the point I want to start out making tonight is that righteousness has nothing to do with works. Write that down. Righteousness has nothing to do with works. So let's go to our opening scripture. Coming out of Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 3 to 7. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. What a beautiful portion of scripture. There's a few things that I want to highlight. It says that we should be holy, and we're going to get onto what that means a little while later, but it says, and without blame. 
there's something that is so rife in our world today. It's so prevalent in the media. It's so prevalent in politics. One thing that frustrates me when I watch even our parliamentarian discourse, people are no longer trying to bring ideas. People are no longer trying to find solutions. All people are trying to do is blame. Your fault. You did it. You messed up. You, you, you must take the punishment. Blame, 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 blame. It's somebody's fault. What is the first thing that happened where God said, Eve, why did you eat the apple? What did she say? Oh, Adam, why did you, why did you sin? Why did you eat the fruit? Blame. Yeah. And it came to Eve, and what did she say? Blame. And it came to the snake, and he didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> so, so what... The, <laughs> That was bad. So God, Jesus, through Jesus, we have come to a point where we are without blame. What does that mean? It means that even though every sin you ever committed was your fault, Jesus took all the blame so that now your righteousness is not even your fault, but it's yours. He took the blame for what you did. Isn't that incredible? And then it says, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. As you are accepted. What do I mean as you are? Surely I have to come through Jesus. Yes, you've come through Jesus. You've had your sins washed away. I realize and that the context I'm speaking in tonight is I'm not speaking to unbelievers. Yes, God will take an unbeliever as he is, but the moment he confesses Jesus and believes in his heart, he's cleansed, he's washed. Every, every sin and accusation against him has been taken away. And we're going to get into, into some of the imagery of that tonight. But the one thing we need, to, we need to leave here tonight thinking is this. The one thing that needs to shift in our hearts, not just tonight, but needs to shift in our hearts to the point where it actually changes the way we live tomorrow and the day after and from here on out, is that God is not mad at me even when I mess up and slip and fall. God is not angry with me. God is not withholding anything from me. And that there is nothing I need to or can possibly do to earn more of God's love or blessing and favor. All of that, in all its fullness, has already been given in Christ Jesus. It says here, "Be Blessed be our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything, the fullness of who God is, is not only available to me, but is reaching out to me, whether I feel like I'm good, whether I feel like I'm bad. My feelings have nothing to do with the fact that God says, I am righteous. I am welcome in his presence, and he delights in my presence. God delights in your presence. That's why he sent Jesus. So let's start looking to define this word righteous. And before I go into the Greek word, which is used in the New Testament and gives us an understanding of what I want to communicate tonight, I want to draw just a few principles from the Hebrew word as well. The Hebrew word, I haven't put it in your notes. It's the word tzedek. If you want to spell it, it's T-S-E-D-E-Q. They would would, uh, probably leave out the vowels. But anyway, that's the Hebrew word for righteousness. And by the way, the word righteousness and the term righteousness is found throughout the Old Testament as well. So it's not just a New Testament concept. Although Jesus has taken care of all righteousness, it's a, it's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. And the basic definition of that, tzedek, it's not so much 
the one who follows all the right rules and performs everything perfectly, but it's the one who follows the right path. So if you look at Abraham, who we call the father of our faith, it says that by faith, God declared him righteous. So Abraham, in the old covenant, attained righteous, righteous status. How? Through faith. Why? Because he set his life on the right path. He set his heart towards God. Another understanding of the word righteous in Hebrew is gracious charity. Gracious charity. So first of all, that has to do with us receiving it from God. God's righteousness to us is his gracious charity towards us. When you give gracious charity to somebody, you do that because they are unable to do it for themselves. The reason we have charities is because there are people who cannot provide for themselves, who need to be cared for and looked after. Likewise, you and I, in our sinful state, need the charity of God. That is His righteousness that reaches out to us in our fallen state and does that which we are unable to do. But going beyond that, those who, 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 who embody that heart of righteousness are those who look for opportunities to serve other people. So in the old Hebrew sense, works of righteousness would be works of charity to others that extend that heart that God gives to us, doing that for us which we cannot do for ourselves, they would do also for other people. So it's a very benevolent word. It's a word of looking out for the interests of others, coming from a place of strength and lifting up that which is weak and unable and feeble. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us? In his might, he came down and lifted, well, he didn't come in his might, did he? He left all of that behind. But in might, he lifted us all up to where he is, overcoming sin and hell, and sickness, and the grave, and all of these things. Now let's work, look at the Greek word. The Greek word is dikesune. I think that's how it's pronounced. Forgive me if it's not. And it's very interesting. It's very interesting that if you read the New Testament, normally we'll say that there are multiple Greek words for an English word, but on this occasion... There's two English words that are both translated to back to the same word. If you see in the New Testament the word just and the word righteous, they both come from this word dekisune. And they have the, the English has different understandings and meanings, so it breaks it down to understand it a little bit differently. What does it mean to be just and what does it mean to be righteous? And the way they extrapolate themselves in our understanding is slightly different. But the root is the same. And both are right. Both are right interpretations and understandings. You can, if you read your New Testament, when you see just, you can swap it out with the word righteous. And sometimes it would be really helpful for you to actually do that. It gives you a deeper understanding of what is actually being communicated there. So what does it mean? It means the character or quality of being right or just in right standing or uprightness before God. That's very in interesting. In, in right standing or uprightness before God, being in right standing with God, not owing anything as in accounting. 
So we have Mark here, who is an auditor. He will be going through people's books. He'll look at their ledger. He'll look at their balance sheet. And at the end of the day, he'll come up with what hopefully be, will be a balanced set of books where every set, cent is accounted for, where no money is owed to the company, and where the company doesn't owe money to anybody. Everything is clean. That is what righteousness means between me and God. It means God doesn't owe me anything, and I now do not owe him anything. But we can enjoy a wonderful, harmonious relationship free of imposed expectations. Imposed expectations are a big thing because we feel those every day of our lives. There are expectations that are imposed upon you by your, by your workplace. There are probably expectations that are imposed upon you by your parents. Would you agree? To do certain things, to meet a certain standard. Now, are you telling me, Michael, God doesn't expect anything of me? Well, of course he does. But here's the difference. He doesn't impose it upon you. Isn't that incredible? That the God who created all of this, who could say to you, you need to do this, and he'd be utterly right in saying it, doesn't. He leads us in his paths of righteousness. He walks the way with us. But instead of imposing things externally upon us, he motivates heart attitudes and desires within us that lead to works of righteousness because they come and become an expression of who we are and out of the intimacy of our relationship with Him. One of the things I'm most cautious of as a pastor is imposing things upon people. I don't like doing it. Sometimes I do it inadvertently, but very often I, I'm quite deliberate in trying not to impose things on people. You need to be there at that meeting. If I have to tell you you have to be there at that meeting, there's already something wrong. Now, sometimes you have to do that with people. Sometimes you need to help people. Sometimes people need a bit of discipline to get their heart in the right place or to be coached or mentored. All of that is part of it. But if their heart's not willing in the first place, you can't do that to them, can you? So what does a disciple mean? I mean, we've covered discipleship. Disciple is doing what somebody else wants. Isn't that stuff that's imposed on me? Yes. But does Jesus ever force you to do things externally? No. You give him the freedom to lead. And he says, all right, now that I've got the wheel, let's go this way. Let's do this. Let's do that. That's the beauty of this wonderful relationship that we have. Okay. The word suggests conformity to the revealed will of God in all respects. That's quite a big one as well. So we understand that to be in right standing with God means to have all things right in the way God also intended them to be. So when God created you, he created you righteous. He created you in his image, right? No sickness, no disease, no sin, nothing of the fallen man's state present. Now, when you get born again, what happens? God's original intent for you is restored. And so seeking after his kingdom, his lordship, the expression of his power, and seeking of his, after his righteousness is seeking after the fulfillment of that restoration work in who I am, where everything I am comes back into the original design God intended for me. Finally, the kisone is both judicial and gracious. God declares the believer, who once was a sinner, righteous in the sense of acquitting him by imparting justice to him. And we're going to look at that, sorry, by imparting righteousness to him. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes under the term justification. So 2 Corinthians 5.22 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
God's very essence of righteousness is what we are recreated in when we become new creations in Christ Jesus. Isn't that incredible? If it were not so, we could not fellowship with him. You see, folks, we need to get placed to the understanding of just some, some Old Testament thinking here for a moment. Adam and Eve in the presence of God, sin enters the scene. They can no longer be in the presence of God like that. So he chases them out of the garden to protect them from eating the tree again so that they stay forever in that state. We then have Moses. Well, we first have, have Abraham who has intimacy and fellowship with God. We see righteousness coming through there. We have Moses who goes and talks to God on the top of a mountain. Fire and brimstone. Three days later, he comes down as an advertisement for Eli's light bulbs. He is literally glowing. Literally glowing. He has to wear a veil to cover himself from the glory of God that is now manifestly reflecting out of his face. Incredible story. We see Isaiah, what happened to him. We see the, the old covenant tabernacle and the, the holy of holies and the system that was built for, for the people of Israel to come and make atonement for their sins and how God's desire was to come and presence himself with his people and to be there. And there was a whole rigmarole that had to go up leading to the day once a year where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and God's presence would be there between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant and his presence would come. And you know what a fearful thing that was? Never mind the preparation of three days beforehand, no sleep and certain prayers and rituals and cleansing rituals and all sorts of things that had to go on and special dress the guy goes into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his ankle so that if they don't hear the bells on the end of his robe jiggling anymore after a while, they'll realize that he has dropped dead in the presence of God for it is such a fearful thing. And they can then yank him out because if they can't yank him out, they can't go in there to get him because they too would die. Such an awesome thing is the presence of God. And yes, that, yet that is what God has brought you and I into his awesome, all-powerful presence. No longer once a year where we have to fulfill a whole bunch of rituals, but Jesus fulfilled every circumstance or every requirement so that you and I can enjoy that all-powerful presence now, today, every moment in our hearts. Isn't that incredible? How far short of that do we live because we do not realize what we have abiding within us? How far short of that do we live because we are so much more conscious of our shortcomings and our weaknesses than we are of the fullness of the righteousness of Jesus that abides within us? If we could take our minds off our own fallen state for just a while and begin to focus on who God has made us to be, what do you think that would do to your faith? What do you think that would do to your level of peace, of joy? Take you to another planet. Take you to another realm of existence. And that's exactly what Jesus has called us to and continues to call us into. So the first thing I want to point out here is that righteousness comes only through faith in Jesus. We've already established you can't get it through works. It's only through faith in him. Point two, point two. Christ bore our sins on the cross and endured the penalty that we deserved that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And here are some key words related to understanding righteousness. Number one, redemption. 
This concerns the release from a penalty by the payment of a price or a ransom, and it means to buy back. So, so for example, this phone is my phone. It belongs to me. Now, at some point, this sto- phone was stolen from me. It, it's now, it's, it, it should still be mine. Somebody else has got my phone. He now holds me to ransom and says, right, you want your phone back? It's going to cost so much. So I once deemed this phone to be mine, but now it is no longer mine because somebody else has taken it. So I pay the price, and I get my phone back. This phone is now redeemed. It's deemed again to be mine. And I've paid the ransom in full. There is therefore, I don't owe him anything anymore, even though what he did was wrong. I don't owe him anything anymore. And he doesn't owe me anything either because he's got nothing more that is mine. I've got my phone back. That's what redemption means. It means to buy back. Justification. The picture of justification is this. You have a courtroom in which here we have the accused. You see, this is why it's dangerous to sit right in front of me. Here we have the accused. Here here we have the accuser of the brethren. We noticed that a little earlier on. (laughs) And here we have the defense. Okay. And we have the judge standing up in the front. And here we have the accuser of the brethren saying, he did this. And he says, it's true. How do you plead to this charge? Guilty. Guilty. You are guilty to every single charge. And no matter what the accuser comes up with, you know that you're guilty of that charge. Until the defense comes and stands up and says, I will pay for every penalty. I will pay his sentence. I will pay his ransom. I will pay this. So I will take care of everything that all the judgment that should go against him. Consider it paid. The judge will therefore look at this man and say, therefore, every requirement that was against you has now been met. There is nothing more that stands against you. I pick up my gavel and I say, you are hereby acquitted. (laughs) Case closed. Judgment handed down. It does not matter from that point on what the accuser says. Judgment has been made. No matter how many times he brings back what has happened, judgment has been made. He has been acquitted. He walks free. No charges stick. Why? Because they've all already been paid. That's what justification means. Being declared right or just, just or righteous, as in a court of law, acquitted of all allegations. So it doesn't mean that the allegations didn't have any merit. It simply means the judge has said, despite every allegation... I declare him fit. I declare him righteous. Price paid. The word doesn't mean to make one righteous, but to account one as righteous. And finally, God justifies us. This is the incredible thing. God does not justify you at the end of your Christian walk when he weighs up your good deeds and your bad deeds on the scales of eternity. No, he judges you righteous right at the beginning of your Christian walk. Why? Because he does not want you to live your life trying to earn salvation, trying to earn his blessings or his goodness. He knows you never could. So he makes you whole and righteous from the very beginning so that you can live a life that represents his love. That's what we're working on as a spiritual family as well. That we're a family on a journey to become more like Christ. That the righteousness that he is and the life that he has given us begins to bubble up in us and out of us. We've got this beautiful word, propitiation. And this concerns the averting of God's wrath against ungodliness. So in other words, the the deserved punishment or the propitiation he, Jesus, took on 
all the punishment that we deserved. And finally, sanctification. This is the process of becoming holy as a progressive work of divine grace upon the soul, justified by the love of Christ. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about sanctification. Lesson five in this course is all about sanctification and what that means and the journey that that involves. But there's also a scripture that I want to read to you. It's Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. You can make the reference. I'll read it to you. Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. I didn't clothe myself. He has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he has covered me with his robe of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? So in other words, I go in with my bright orange overalls, which say South African Correctional Services on them. And I go into a little changing room, and he takes off my orange overalls, and he gives me royal robes. Robes of significance, robes that carry authority, and robes that are designed to represent him and his kingdom and his authority. What a trade. So why is righteousness so important? Why, what is the need for righteousness? Well, we've already established that it's about intimacy with God. Worship is about intimacy with God. Discipleship is about intimacy with God. That's what it's all about. Righteousness is the requirement for us to be able to enjoy that. God's plan for man is holiness. Holy means to be set apart unto God. If you say that God is holy, what does it mean? It means that he is set apart from everything else in the universe. He is in a league of his own. Nothing compares to him in his righteousness, in his glory, in who he is. So when God talks to us about holiness and bringing us into that place of holiness, that we should also be holy, it means that we are now set apart from all that which is sinful, all that which leads to death, and brought to a place where we can be in his presence. The whole purpose of sanctification, and we're going to get to that, like I said, in Lesson 5, is that we are set apart from this world, not to be isolated or from it, apart from the world to God, for God, dedicated and devoted to Him alone. Let me read you a couple of portions of Scripture here. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Just as he chose him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Wow. That we should be without blame before God. 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. What does that mean? Holiness is the expression of a revelation of righteousness. Holiness, like righteousness, is not something I can attain by doing good and by not doing bad. We've got to get ourselves beyond this thinking. It's not about works. It's about a state of being. Holiness is the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, bringing us to a state of righteousness. Remember last week we spoke about worship. We read 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. You are now not living 
according to the flesh, according to the law, according to works. You are now living according to the Spirit of God, which you now have intimacy with. One phrase that stood out to me one day, and it's never been able to leave me, I, I, really, I really love that, that verse of Scripture. It's quite an obscure verse of Scripture. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, you know, the stuff I hear about you, the divisions among you, the arguing, the fighting, the quarreling, all the stuff that's going on around you, you guys are behaving like mere men. Normal humans. Now you think, so what's wrong with that? Are we not mere men? Are we not just simple humans? Here's the thing. If that's how you see yourself, that's how you will live. God has called us to be holy, to be set apart from the world in who we are. So Jesus says it this way when he prays for his disciples. He says, God, I pray for them. Not that you will take them out of the world. I don't want the, not that you will remove us from earth, but that through, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but the heart of the message goes, but that I in them and them in me and me in you, that through this intimate relationship, they may know you like I know you and therefore do the works that I did and show this world what you are like in the same way that I showed this world what you are like that they may live a life of worship. Remember, Jesus, John 17, 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you've given me, given me to do. What I want to do now is I want to take a five, ten-minute break. Then I'm going to read you a story, and we're going to talk about walking in righteousness. Should we do that? Boys and girls, it's story time. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there was a mommy eagle and a daddy eagle. And they had two little eggs that they laid in a nest. And on a particularly blustery day, one of those eggs fell down out of the nest and rolled down the edge and fell, uh, edge of the precipice, and fell down and landed in a tree whose branch caught it so beautifully that it didn't break, and landed on another branch which caught it so beautifully that it didn't break. You can tell this as a fairy tale, absolutely miraculous story. And this egg eventually ended up rolling into the farmer's chicken coop down on the farm. And one of the hens sat on this egg faithfully, kept it warm until the time came when it cracked and came open. And this little eaglet came out amongst all these chickens. And he looked a little different, and his beak was quite strange. But this chicken reared this little eaglet as if it were her own little chicken, taught him how to peck on the ground for seed, taught him how to scuff the ground to dig for worms and to slurp up the worms and enjoy them taught him how to spread his wings just to fly a little bit from one side of the chicken coop to the other, but never any further than that. And this eagle grew up believing that he was a chicken and knew nothing more than eating seed off the ground. One day, however, little eagle went to go and visit the wise old owl. And he said to the wise old owl, something just doesn't feel right. I feel so unsatisfied. I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. I don't feel like I'm doing what I was created to do. And the owl, wise old owl said, well, of course you're not. Do you not know that you are not a chicken? 
You are at the pinnacle of the creation of birds, of the, of the bird species. You are an eagle. And at that moment, something in the heart of that little eagle resonated and he got this warm glow inside because he knew that something that had just been spoken was the truth. And in that moment, he spread forth his wings and with a mighty flap, he ascended into the air with a squawk. Ah! Ah! And rode the wind to the highest height. <laughs> he had discovered the truth of who he was. Just a little bit of ad lib there. And this is why I'm the one who gets to read stories to my kids at night. <laughs> What's the moral of the story? Is there a <laughs> Carmen's life has just been changed forever. I told you this message would impact you. <laughs> fly, eagle, fly. Go do what you were created to do. Why do I tell that story? It's a little children's story, but you know what? It bears so much relevance to what we're talking about tonight. Many of us live lives like chickens, groveling around for the scraps of life, hoping for the best, expecting the worst, only one day to have our heads chopped off and end up, you know, someone's meal. Someone's going to do us in some way. Whereas God has created us to soar with Him in heavenly places to not be bound to an earthly way of doing things. My hope tonight is, as I said to you, that you will have a realization of the truth of who it is that God has made you to be. You are not chickens in the grand scheme of things. We are not on the bottom of the pecking order and on the bottom of the pecking order and on the bottom of the food chain. We are right at the top. We are kings and priests in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that that means but what we are going to talk a little bit about now is what it means to walk in righteousness. That we do not live lives that are just like mere humans, like we spoke about. But we allow that righteousness, that revelation of righteousness and righteous consciousness, where we live from a point of view of knowing that God is happy with us, His blessing is with us, His power is upon us, and we go forth from a place of blessing and victory rather than living lives that are defeated, always succumbing to the circumstances around us. So Romans chapter 5, verse 19, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 13, because it beautifully articulates some of these, these, these principles, but also gives us keys as to how it is that we begin to come to the realization of righteousness and begin living out of it. It says this, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... So also, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pause for a moment there. We need to understand, folks, that the reason the law was given was not so that we could keep it. That needs to settle into your, into your understanding. God did not give the Ten Commandments and the law of the Torah because He expected us to keep it. He knew the moment He gave it that we couldn't keep it. The whole reason He gave the law was for us to realize His holy righteous standard and recognize our need for a Savior. 
that we would call out to Him so that He could do what only He could do and that, we, that which we could never do. 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. In other words, my old man, my sinful nature does not exist anymore. It's dead. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Not once and for all, but once for all. In other words, he died once for all of us, every one of us. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we, three, we see three clear steps here, and I want to focus on each of them because it helps us in our thinking process to apply this righteousness to our worldview, to our perspective. If we have died to sin, we should no longer continue living in it. Doesn't that make sense? Yet, do we still struggle with it? Of course, yes, we sometimes do. We do still struggle with temptation. Sin should no longer overtake us. It should not have dominion or power over us. We now have the authority and the power over sin. But the, the steps to making that righteousness a reality in our lives, where sin is now not something we grapple and struggle with every day, though we may slip up from time to time, is this. Number one, in verse, chapter 6, verse 6, it says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, Knowing is the first thing that we have to do. This is why those who were baptized into Christ have been baptized into death. Our old man was crucified with him, verse 6. Verse 9, death has no dominion over Christ or over those who are him, in him. And this highlights the importance of baptism. This is what baptism symbolizes. This is what it's about. The knowing is not just an intellectual knowing, but revelation knowledge an opening of the eyes of the heart to see what we have in Christ Jesus. So if I was to ask you a question this way, now this is for honest answer. I don't want to hear it from you, but honest answer. Do you really believe that Jesus has made you righteous, as righteous as he is before God? Are you still fearful 
of coming into God's presence. If you want to pray, oh, I don't want to pray because I just know I've, got, I've done all this stuff, then you haven't had a revelation of righteousness. That revelation needs to sink deep into your heart. How does that happen? Well, it happens through meditation. It happens through things like being here tonight where you hear the Word of God saying, God's not mad at you. He's got nothing against you. He just wants to spend time with you. Do you really believe that Jesus has made you righteous? Flesh, as it refers to in the Scripture, is not the manifestation of... Sorry, is the manifestation of sin in our as-yet-unredeemed bodies whereas the old man is the all-inclusive term of everything we were in Adam. So let me give you a very brief explanation of what this all means. God is a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when He created us, He created us in His image as triune beings. Spirit, soul, and body. Your spirit is the real you. It's who you are. It's the essence of who you are. Your soul, though clearly identifiable from your spirit, is inseparable from your spirit. Your spirit and your soul cannot be separated. But your soul is made up of your mind, your way of thinking, your will, your desire, and your decision-making ability, your freedom, as well as your emotions. That's all in your soul. And your soul and your spirit are intertwined. And then all of those live within the body. And yes, they can be separated from your body when you die. Your body stays here. Your spirit goes to where your spirit's going to go. Our spirits will go to be with the Lord, to be with Jesus. Whatever, whatever that may look like. And so what he's talking about here, he says, do not let your flesh reign. The understanding is this. When Jesus saves me, my spirit is born again completely. I am righteous. I am accepted in the beloved. My soul needs work. Because I still have stinking thinking. I still think like a chicken. I still live like a chicken. Even though inside of me beats the heart of an eagle, I've got to change the way I see myself, my circumstances, the world around me. I've got to get up and get eagle perspective and allow the desires of an eagle to grow in my heart. And as that happens, the desires of chicken living will, will, will dissipate like mist in the sun. And then finally, I have my flesh, which is still subject to this fallen world. That's why we still see sickness among us. That's why we can still get a cold. Every cold you get is not an attack of the enemy. It's because you live in a fallen world, people. And we have to, we have to tend for these things. And yes, I do believe in divine healing, and I do believe in divine health. And God comes through, and these things can be manifest in our lives. But our flesh still has the old desires towards sin that we used to have are still in our flesh but within our hearts is a new desire that desires to walk away from sin. Paul carries on. I'm not going to go into all of it, but he says, oh, wretched man that I am, why is it I do the things I don't in my heart want to do and I don't do the things that in my heart I do want to do? He's talking about this battle between the renewed man, the eagle inside, and yet the fleshly chicken on the outside that still wants to behave and live life like a chicken. There's a war that now begins to go on within us. Joyce Meyer, many years ago, wrote a book called The Battlefield of the Mind. A brilliant book, and it speaks about this, how we battle with thinking that is not in line with who we truly are. And that's part of what I want to do here tonight, is I want to try and give us a way of thinking that is so different from what we're used to or what we're accustomed to or what religion so often feeds us. So the first thing we need to do is we need to know. I need to know and I need to truly believe that I am Jesus has made me righteous. He's paid that price. And that's how God now sees me. Then I need to reckon myself to be dead to sin. What does that mean? We refer to verse 11. But the Greek word for reckon is logizomai, which means to count 
as done. To count as done. Reckoning is based on divinely revealed facts. Otherwise, our faith has now no foundation to rest on. So in the same way as we, we, ha we had that little courtroom incident earlier on where Siobhan was declared as righteous, we now reckon it done. I consider it to be so. Despite every accusation and despite all the evidence pointing against me, I consider it to be so. I cast not my expectation or my faith on those allegations or evidence, but on what the Word of God says about me. Reckoning is of the mind and involves giving assent to a fact. Faith is of the heart and involves bringing into reality that which we have decided to do based on the facts we have reckoned to be so. So I first have to know something, knowing what? There's a, there's a, there's a revelation I have of what, that my old man has died. I therefore reckon him to be dead. I give him no more attention. You can go to a graveyard, and you can shout at a grave, and you can say whatever you want to the corpse that is lying six feet under you. What will you get in, in a response? Please. It's nothing. Sorry? Please. Please. <laughs> Look, if someone comes out, you've just performed a miracle, brother. <laughs> you understand the principle? I, I consider him to be dead. In other words, he has no more power over me. Now listen to me. The words, some of us have lost our parents, for example, here. Or your grandparents. There's somebody in your life that, that has passed away. We've all experienced that. The words that they have spoken and the things that they did can still live on very vividly in our minds and still have an impact on a sway on who we are and how we think about ourselves today. Would you agree with me? But the reality is they have no more influence over us. We haven't reckoned them dead. We still reckon what they said to be true and valid and going on today. Do you understand? So it's about the knowing that my old man is dead, but also reckoning him so. What does that mean? When his voice comes up, I say, who are you? Shut up. You're dead. I don't listen to you anymore. And then finally, presenting. Verse 13. We present ourselves to God as alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness. Presenting is stronger than yielding, implying deliberate or assertive surrender. So yielding is, I want you to do this, and you say, oh, okay. There's a difference when Siobhan yields to me in the office environment and when he presents himself to me. Yielding is when I have to phone him and say, Siobhan, I want you to please do this for me, and he says, okay, I'll do it. That's yielding to me. Presenting yourself is when he comes into my office and he says, is there anything I can do for you? Do you understand the difference? Romans 12 verse 1 articulates this beautifully. It says this. I beseech you, I beg you, Paul says, by the mercies of God that you present, and then we have that word again, I come and present myself for something, for instruction. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, here's that word again, acceptable to God. How is it that it's acceptable to God? Because you're now righteous which is your reasonable service. 
hey guys, he's not saying, yeah, I want you to go and above and beyond the duty, call of duty here. He's saying, as believers, as Christians, our most common sense, our reasonable service, once we know that our old man has, been, has, has passed away, that those desires should no longer control us, I therefore reckon my old man to be dead. I reckon myself, I consider myself to be righteous in the presence of God, open to his leading. What's the natural thing there? I present myself, not to my old desires of sinfulness, but I present myself now to the King of all glory who lives within me and says, here I am, God. I live not for me, but I live for you. Lead me. Show me. Lead me by your love. Guide me. That's how we begin for this nature of righteousness to begin living, to begin living out of the fullness of that revelation. We believe it to be so. We reckon ourselves no longer alive to our dead old man and we present ourselves to God. And we have help in this, in the form of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. In the same discourse, we need to understand, Paul's writing here in the book of Romans, and we started in chapter 5, and he goes on, and he, he goes on through chapter 6, and he says, you know, sin, and he talks about the battle and the war between his flesh and his, and his spirit man, and he comes to Romans chapter 8, and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what does that mean? That means I still have the ability to walk according to my old nature. I still have a choice in this, folks. I still can live like a chicken if I want to. And God will still love me. God will still forgive me. And God will still try to bless me as much as I can. I still have the choice to live as a chicken. But if I live according to the Spirit... I, I spread my wings and I begin to do that which I was created to do. An eagle, all he has to do is spread his wings. The wind takes care of the rest. There's very, very little effort in it. If you watch an eagle soaring, it's almost effortless. All he does is stand with his arms out and he hangs on the wind. He hangs on the breeze. And likewise, when you and I become led by the Spirit, all the striving, all the struggling ceases. All the stuff that we grapple with and battle with to try and be good enough and try not to do bad and try to do good, the works are no longer an effort. They become a manifestation of God working in us. It's a joy and it becomes an effortless exercise. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh an account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The promise of no condemnation is a positional truth for those who are in Christ. That means that there is not condition, that, that, that it is not conditional on the behavior of the believer. And we've covered that already. Condemnation cannot be dealt with by sanctification, only by justification. What does condemnation mean? It's beyond conviction. So when you are convicted in a legal... Uh, the, the legal battle is a really good analogy. When you are convicted of a crime, what, what do you have to do? You have to go on trial. When sentence is handed down, you, will be, you are then condemned to that sentence. Would you agree? Yes. Is it just that uh, in a certain sense, we're 
beyond repair. Good, very good analogy. Very good analogy. Beyond repair. The secret to living a life that is free from any form of condemnation, sin consciousness, in other words, my constant awareness of my shortcomings, or guilt as a result thereof, is to focus our hearts and minds on walking according to the Spirit. You see, folks, you've got to understand the two roles that we have here. There is the role of the Spirit of God that is constantly trying to remind us of who we are in Christ Jesus. Righteous, loved, accepted in the Beloved. And then there is the voice of the accuser of the, of the brethren that is constantly re- trying to remind you of how bad you are. And, and the truth is, all of that is lies. And we believe the lie to be the truth. And so we live accordingly as chickens. Romans 8, 5 to 10, going on in the same discourse. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, on chicken living. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, or in other words, to think according to the patterns of this flesh or this world is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Again, I'm going to go back to Romans chapter 12, Earlier on, we read verse 1. Now I'm going to read verse 2. It says, And do not be conformed to this world. In other words, the fleshly world. But be transformed. What? From a chicken into an eagle. Be transformed through the renewing of your mind that you may prove. I love that. That you may prove. Because God wants to demonstrate the truth and the power of His Word in and through your life. What is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God? Carrying on back to our notes here, Romans 8 verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it, cannot, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We go back to lesson one, discipleship. Without me, you can do nothing. Remember that? You see how this is all beginning to tie together. There's a thread that runs through the whole thing. That nothing comes through works or self-effort. It's all through intimacy with Him. But you are not in the flesh but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, we are now alive to God. The word subject in verse 7 means to arrange orderly underneath. And this deals with subjection and obedience and yielding. The carnal mind cannot come under the control of the Word of God. Only the spiritual mind can. That's why God cannot be worshipped according to the mind. Because God is not a mental being. God is not a thought. He's a spirit being. That's why you are a spirit man. You were created for intimacy and worship. Now we can understand certain things about God. But God is not subject to our intellect. Romans 8.11 But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 5.5. The indwelling Holy Spirit gives life to a body that is subject to sin and has no power over it. So in other words, our bodies, our physical bodies, the Holy Spirit works something in it. The result is that my body can manifest holiness. This is Christ's resurrection power at work. And if this power of God was sufficient to raise Christ from the dead, it is certainly adequate to ensure our victory over temptation. 
what does this bring me to? This brings me to a place where I have peace with God. Peace with God. He's not mad at me. I'm not mad at him. He needs nothing from me. And I've already received everything that he has. The primary fruit of righteousness is peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace means to be in harmony and to enjoy harmonious relationship. And the result of this peace is quietness in our souls and an assurance in our faith. Quietness where I'm not striving, I'm not stressed, I'm not struggling about my well-being. I'm at rest in God. I trust completely in His work of righteousness in me. Romans 5, 3-5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in the hearts in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This quietness, the word shakat, means to be rested or to be settled. It's an assurance from the word betach, which means a place of refuge and safety, both as a fact and as a feeling or a sensation of trust. And this peace forms the foundation of our character. We no longer are striving to become better or to do the right things. Rather, we are secure in who Christ has made us to be. Doesn't that just take a weight off your shoulders as a believer? All the works, all the stuff is fluff when compared to what I already am and already have. I have nothing more to gain. Sure, okay, we could talk about eternal rewards and that kind of thing for works. But again, even that, if it's done in the flesh, accomplishes nothing. So all I have is to yield and surrender myself to God. It is the most liberating place to be. So let's talk about that, engaging in God's grace as we wrap this up. Romans 5, verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith to His grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Only a believer who experiences true peace with God can boldly access His grace. Grace is God's power and His ability enabling me to do that which I cannot do myself. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I want to read you a portion of Scripture which changed my life. Hebrews chapter 5. Grace is everything God is and has and can do at our disposal through Christ Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 says this. Sorry, verse... Well, let's 14 to 16. It says, Seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What is that confession? That's my reckoning. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in other words, Jesus gets it. He understands how I feel. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One of those days that I was telling you about where I was having a pity party before God because I, was still trying to, I still felt guilty and bad about what I was doing or sin that was in my life. God said to me, Michael, what kind of person needs mercy? And the answer is simply somebody who's done something wrong. 
If I haven't done anything wrong, I don't need any mercy. There's no accusation against me. And yet that scripture says I must come boldly to his throne when I need mercy. What does that mean? God is not waiting to punish me. God is waiting to forgive me. So that this thing that I have, that, I, that is purely a perception in my mind that God is mad at me, can he can just wipe that away and say, that's already forgiven. And then he says, to find mercy and grace. What is grace? Grace is more than just God's divine favor. Grace is his ability working in me. I've, I've articulated it there. It's his ability and his power enabling me to do that where I, that I can't do. So I acknowledge, I got, God, I need mercy because I try to do it and I can't. And God said, of course you can't. I knew you can't all along. That's why I sent my son. So why do you feel bad about it? We all know you can't. It's only you who still thinks you can. But now that you've realized you can't, here's my grace. What's this? Well, that's the fullness of everything you need to do that which you can't do. It's like Woolworth's water. (laughs) Only a lot stronger. (laughs) It's the ability to do that which you are unable to do in your natural ability. It takes you to another level. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace, all grace abound towards you, that you, as a righteous son and daughter of God, always will have all sufficiency, everything you need in every circumstance and in every situation, and not only what you need, but you will have an abundance of all of that for every good work that may come across your path to do. You begin to live a supernatural life naturally. Because you've learned to find that place of saying, Jesus, I surrender. I know I can't. Why I'm even trying anymore, I do not know. I surrender to your righteousness. Let it come alive in me. Only a revelation of righteousness will set us free from living lives that are subject to sin, carnality, and weakness, chicken thinking. Those attributes belong to our old man. We need to see ourselves as Christ sees us, righteous and accepted in the beloved. This revelation gives us great peace and boldness in approaching God. It forms the foundation of our faith and character and is essential to live a victorious life in the blessing and providence of God. Meditate on the scriptures on the following pages of who you are in Christ until they become a revelation to you. So if you turn the page there, you will see two full pages of God's view of who you are. I'm not going to go through all of them. But let's just look on them. Look at some of them. You can make this as a a confession. I am what? I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am God's child. I am victorious. so, so, So let's just break this down a little bit and use that same procedure. I know it because the Bible says so. I reckon myself to it. And therefore, I present myself as victorious. I walk into this situation not as the defeated one, but I walk in here as the victor. I am the undisputed, undefeated champion in this situation. But you haven't won anything. No. But he who lives in me is greater than he that is in the world. Undisputed, undefeated champion. That's Jesus. I am elect. In other words, I'm chosen. I am established to the end. I am complete in him. I am accepted in the beloved. I am qualified by Christ Jesus to share in his inheritance. I am overtaken with blessing. 
I am the salt of the earth. I am God's workmanship. I am an ambassador for Christ. I am raised up with Christ. What do I have? Well, I have the mind of Christ. I know it. I believe it. I reckon it to be so. And so I present myself to it as such. I have overcome the world through Christ Jesus. I've received power. I live by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I walk in Christ by faith. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And my life is hidden with Christ in God. When these things begin to truly set in and become a revelation, man, I'm no longer striving anymore. I am free. Because who the Son sets free is free indeed. The one thing that made Jesus so mad on the earth were the Pharisees who put laws and regulations and stuff, yokes, heavy yokes on people. And he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. Because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just asking you to come and be with me and allow me to be in you and with you and I will do the work of transformation in your heart. I have already taken care of righteousness, so continue to look to me to take care of the rest. Amen? Has this changed anything in your way of thinking tonight? I'm hoping that the answers you gave to that test already probably spoke more to you than anything I could have said tonight. And that just shows us how much our thinking still looks like chicken thinking. So let me close it there and open up the floor and say, are there any questions or comments? We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.